The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And so whether Garland's judgment is that there is no conflict of interest, but there's an extraordinary circumstance, or whether it's that he doesn't reach the question of whether there's a conflict of interest because there's an extraordinary circumstance, it leads you to the same place anyway, which is that uh, the regs, at least if you're going to be honest about it, require uh, the appointment of a special counsel. So I think it's correct. I think it's the correct decision. And I'm not sure it wasn't required before, although I, I think the line that they've drawn is probably a defensible one, but I just don't see the argument for not doing it after Tuesday. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is a special edition of the Lawfare Podcast, November 18th, 2022. Earlier today, in a surprise announcement, Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed a special counsel to lead two ongoing federal investigations of former president and now official 2024 presidential candidate Donald Trump. The special counsel, Jack Smith, is a longtime DOJ prosecutor and currently the chief Kosovo war crimes prosecutor in The Hague. He will take over the investigation into the retention of classified and government documents at Mar-a-Lago, as well as the investigation into attempts to interfere with the lawful transfer of power after the 2020 election. To make sense of the special counsel appointment and what it means for the federal investigations into Donald Trump, I spoke with Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Ben Wittes, Lawfare Senior Editor Quinta Jurassic, and former FBI agent Peter Strzok, who worked on special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into foreign election interference in the 2016 election. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 18th, another special counsel investigation of Donald Trump. Quinta, just set the scene for us. What did Attorney General Garland say a few hours ago, and who is Jack Smith, the new special counsel? So we're recording this at around 5 p.m. Eastern on Friday. Uh, Just a few hours earlier, the Justice Department came out with kind of a surprise announcement that Attorney General Merrick Garland would be appointing a special counsel to oversee the multiple investigations into former President Donald Trump. Uh, The two investigations at issue, first, uh, the investigation into January 6th, and second, the investigation into uh, the Mar-a-Lago documents issue. So Smith is taking full control of that second investigation into the Mar-a-Lago documents. And I I think it's also important to note that Garland stated explicitly and the Justice Department also uh, stated this in its uh, written press announcement that Smith's investigation will include not only the kind of original investigation into sensitive documents being held improperly at Mar-a-Lago, but also potential obstruction of justice into that investigation. And that's something that we knew already that the Justice Department was looking into. On January 6th, 
Um, I'm going to read directly from the order because I think the specific language here is important. Smith is now in charge of overseeing, and I quote, the ongoing investigation into whether any person or entity violated the law in connection with efforts to interfere with the lawful transfer of power following the 2020 presidential election or the certification of the Electoral College vote held on or about January 6, 2021. So essentially, Smith is going to be looking at the kind of higher level question of who coordinated January 6th, who was behind it. Um, I think we could imagine that this could include the fake electors component of the investigation. But the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., which has been overseeing the investigation into the kind of lower level, the people who are actually on the ground broke into the Capitol on the 6th, the U.S. Attorney's Office is going to retain control over that portion of the investigation. So they're kind of splitting the January 6th probe in two. Let me ask a quick follow up on that. You know, we at Lawfare love to love to parse the, this kind of language. What, if anything, do you take away from this clearly very carefully crafted language about what DOJ is currently investigating with respect to January 6th? It's a good question. I mean, I don't think it changes my perception of what the department had been looking into, which is, you know, not just the question of what Trump and his associates might have been doing on the 6th or in the run up to the 6th having to do with the the certification itself, but the sort of bigger picture, what was Trump up to after the 2020 vote? That's why I mentioned the fake electors. Um, of course, it is noteworthy that the language says any person uh, you can you can draw some conclusions perhaps about that they're not they're not ruling anything out but I also think you know in some ways it's kind of a, a formalization of a split that we've really seen over the last few months where the lower level cases and I don't want to downplay those because they're hugely significant I think there have been over 800 of these cases charged so far have been kind of chugging along at the level of the DC US Attorney's Office whereas main justice uh, so kind of HQ, has been looking at these higher level questions, which has obviously led to a lot of speculation, which I, I'm sure will uh, not be tamped down at all um, about whether Trump himself might face charges. But I'm interested in in what Ben and Pete's read on this might be. Um, so I'll, I'll hop in. I, I think it almost certainly includes the, the false elector plots. I think it's hard to decouple when you start looking at the broad efforts, particularly if you're examining people like Eastman and Clark, the efforts that took place on January 6th are sort of, you can't separate those out from the discussion of developing slates of false electors about the legal theory and positioning and trying to get Trump to endorse them or not, trying to put pressure on Pence to endorse them or not. And so all these key players, if I had to guess, you know, Trump is certainly included, but I would expect that you know, likely investigations of folks from Eastman Clark, Meadowstone, Bannon, Giuliani, Flynn, this this sort of inner circle of people who were involved, not just with the physical interruption of the certification on the 6th, but everything related to it. If one of the goals of what you're trying to do with the special counsel is to streamline and put all of the sort of politically sensitive linked investigations together, in my mind, you would almost necessarily have to put all these things together, one, because of the goal of why you're appointing a special counsel, and two, just from a investigative efficiency, if you don't bring all those things together, 
they're so linked that you're going to cause friction and delay. You know, if you're pursuing a case against Donald Trump and an entirely different entity is pursuing a case against Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani, who makes the decision about whether or not you're going to offer a cooperation agreement? What are you prioritizing in terms of trying to come up with cases against them or just building enough to compel them to cooperate with you? So from a standpoint of if you want to move about this in an efficient way, setting apart all the appearance of objectivity and political independence. It makes sense in my mind to have all of those things under one roof. I very much think based on the way the appointment order is written, that's exactly what it's doing. And I would expect, you know, one, all these folks are going to come together. And two, that's a lot of people. I mean, that is a very broad set of activities. If you're looking at going back to efforts to gin up false electors in all the states that were doing that, when you start looking at all the people potentially involved in that, that's a very, very broad group of folks. Yeah, I just want to say that uh, a good way to think about this here is that, uh, so we'll get into the rules about appointing of special prosecutors in a moment, but there's a group of people that the Justice Department has no conflict of interest with respect to prosecuting. And that's the people at the Capitol. And there was, when that was the issue, there is uh, no need for a special counsel. There's a group of people, like a group of one person, Donald Trump, who the Justice Department has a big appearance problem prosecuting because he's running against the guy in office who appointed Merrick Garland and he would remove Merrick Garland if he got elected. Uh, so you obviously, or in, by this logic, obviously need a special prosecutor to handle that situation. And then there's the group of people in between. And I think the basic jurisdictional line here is if they're one degree from Donald Trump, they're going to be handled by the special prosecutor. If they're two degrees from Donald Trump, they're going to be closer to the people on the ground. That's the you know, the Proud Boys leadership, the Oath Keepers leadership, those are going to be handled by the Justice Department. So that's a loose way of thinking about it. Are these people who actually talked to the president and and who might be involved in a conspiracy with the president, or are these people who are conspiring with folks who to beat up cops? So Ben, I'm, I'm going to ask you to to talk about the rules and regs. But before I do that, I want to just close out the the, the facts, uh, the scene setting. And so Quinta, who is Jack Smith? And can, can you imagine a, a better name for a special counsel than w- what his legal name is, John Smith? I don't know. For some reason, I find that kind of genericness so perfect for a DOJ special counsel. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it really is uh, perfect. And I will definitely recommend that Listeners, take a look at his uh, official portrait um, from his current gig at a special court stood up um, in in The Hague having to do with uh, war crimes in Kosovo, where he has like the nice purple robes that they wear. He has a very sort of pensive looking beard. He looks kind of like a wizard. I'm I'm very pro. Um, So all joking aside. um, So yeah, so Smith is, I think, very much a a career prosecutor. 
Um, and Garland emphasized that in his announcement. This is someone who spent the first 14 years of his career as a, a prosecutor, uh, first as an assistant DA in New York, then moving up to the federal level in the Eastern District of New York. Um, and he ran uh, for a time the public integrity section in the Justice Department starting in 2010. Uh, so that's the the portion that focuses on prosecution of public officials for corruption. He's also uh, worked at the ICC and now is back there um, at what's called the Kosovo Specialist Chambers in The Hague as what's called a, a specialist prosecutor. So it's a particular criminal body set up uh, to investigate uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity in Kosovo. So this is clearly somebody who you know is very much a creature of both the U.S. and international justice systems. Um, I think you know if, if you were imagining someone whose name was was John Smith perhaps you wouldn't have imagined uh, quite so far flung a career, but he definitely, you know, fits kind of what we might've been looking for in terms of someone who was really, you know, could be trusted to be serious, professional, nonpartisan in conducting these investigations. Okay. Let me, let me go to you, Ben. So can you just remind us what a special counsel is, what the authority is for appointing a special counsel, and maybe most importantly, for our purposes, what the relationship is between the special counsel and the kind of day-to-day DOJ process and hierarchy, in particular, the attorney general himself. So a special counsel is the latest iteration of a species of prosecutor we call a special prosecutor. And under different uh, rules, they have sometimes been called a special prosecutor, an independent counsel, or now a special counsel. And they have proceeded uh, and been appointed under different sets of rules or laws at different times. But it all amounts to the same thing, which is sometimes the Justice Department faces a political investigation that it would be awkward for it to do itself, that people would think there's a political conflict of interest or sometimes an actual conflict of interest. And so the attorney general names a outside figure to take over the investigation. And uh, for Byzantine constitutional reasons, that person has to be removable by the attorney general, but he or she does not have to be supervisable by the attorney general. And so the different laws allow different mechanisms by which the special counsel operates independently of the attorney general. Under the current regs, the attorney general names the special counsel, gives the special counsel a jurisdictional mandate. And we can talk about, we, we just talked about what Jack Smith's jurisdictional mandate does and doesn't include. And uh, also gets to have a very limited degree of supervisory authority over the special counsel. That includes uh, if he makes a decision, uh, the attorney general is entitled to ask for an explanation of the decision. Uh, he's also entitled to countermand the decision if it is egregiously out of step with Justice Department policy. And the, in the, that situation, he basically has to notify Congress that he did that. So as a functional matter, the attorney general has the ability to get involved if he's really dead set on it. 
but it's a pretty uh, dicey thing to do. As a practical matter, what this means is Merrick Garland has turned over to uh, Mr. Smith the decision of whether to indict Trump in either of these cases and the decision to indict Trump, the people around Donald Trump in both of these cases. So I think functionally, it's a very fateful decision and probably one that uh, was quite painful for Merrick Garland to make. So I just want to get really precise about the specific degree to the extent that we know of oversight that Garland will have. So Smith will go and he will do some investigation and we can talk about what exactly he's going to do, whether he's going to just review what DOJ has already done or do his own stuff, but he will do investigation and then he will make a decision, presumably, let's say just about Mar-a-Lago, let's limit it to that, about whether or not to indict Donald Trump. And if he decides to indict Donald Trump, the expectation will be that he will just indict Donald Trump and Merrick Garland will find out about that in the way that the attorney general finds out about what any assistant U.S. attorney uh, or U.S. attorney does. And then at that point, Merrick Garland will be in the position of demanding or requesting an explanation from Smith. uh, And if he is unhappy with what Smith has done, countermanding him. But ultimately, Smith is the one that will proverbially pull the trigger on an indictment in the first instance. Is that is that correct? So that is what the regs say, but it is almost certainly not what would happen. So Bob Mueller consulted with Rod Rosenstein in a uh, fairly significant way before taking major steps. I think it is to both the attorney general and the special counsel's advantage for them not to be on radically different pages, because nobody wants a situation where the attorney general ends up countermanding. And so my my assumption would be that if there were a dis and this is my assumption, and by the way, you can't find the part of the regs that says they have to do this. They don't. It's just what I think they would do as a functional matter that both as a as a courtesy, but also as a as a ass covering check, um, the special counsel would likely tell the attorney general, I intend to do this and would answer any questions the attorney general has. And then the quid pro quo for that is that the, the absence of a, I, I have anxieties about that is a kind of permission to do it. And if you think about the way Rod Rosenstein behaved with respect to the Mueller investigation, he, uh, you know, would go up to Congress and say, I'm accountable for, for Bob Mueller's decisions. And, you know, Rod Rosenstein was not the picture of political courage, but the fact that he had been consulted in advance probably uh, affected that. And so I think, you know, a healthy relationship between the special counsel and the attorney general uh, would argue for a degree of consultation that exceeds what is actually required by the by the regs. Yeah, and I'd just add here that for with with special counsel Mueller at the beginning on almost a daily basis, somebody from the senior leadership of the team was in touch with DOJ, whether that was Rod, but far more frequently people like Scott Schools, who at the time was the senior non-political uh, official at the Department of Justice. There was a routine interaction. And it wasn't a, you know, 
getting clearance to do everything, but it was certainly a very close uh, coordination relationship, working out issues of scope of the appointment orders. Of course, with every before every event, if we were going to interview somebody significant, if we we're executing a search warrant, if we we're definitely if we we're going to arrest anyone, if we we're considering charges, those were the kind of things that not only would DOJ be mar- made aware of in advance, but also FBI leadership. So it is not every everybody is different. You know, the relationship between Special Counsel Mueller and Rod Rosenstein is, I'm sure, different than it was between Special Counsel Durham and Attorney General Barr and then Garland, and I'm sure is going to be different from the Special Counsel, but. But the, it, it, I, I don't want anybody to think that this is something where you know, the the special counsel kind of launches off in, into his own sort of haze and fog, and then suddenly you know there's an email to Merrick Garland saying, "Hey, boss, can we talk at five fifty-five on you know a Thursday night before they walk into grand jury on Friday morning?" It's it's going to be, I believe, and would guess, a much closer coordinating relationship. So th- this may be a naive question, but the response I have to hearing both you, Ben, and, and Pete describe this is, well, then what is the point of having the special counsel to begin with? So let me analogize, right? We have this by practice um, and no, by regulation, right? This uh, wall between the White House and the Department of Justice to the extent that, in fact, many times the way that the White House is informed by the Department of Justice of an investigation or an indictment is literally the, hey, by the way, we just did this, or we're going to do this in 20 minutes, right? Um, I'm going to give a press conference. Here, what both of you are describing is a much closer relationship, which, again, may be the right or wrong way to have an investigation within DOJ. But to the extent that the special counsel is meant to provide some level of independence because there is a concern either about conflict of interest or because this is such a special case that the public interest requires this kind of new procedure, um, isn't having this close level of coordination, doesn't that undermine the very purpose of the um, independence that a special counsel is supposed to signify? No, and I'll give you a very simple proof of that, which is the question, do you believe that the Mueller report would have been written under Bill Barr's Justice Department, absent the independent counsel regs, or under Jeff Sessions's Justice Department, absent the independent counsel regs? I do not. That's the answer to your question. So basically, it's, it's, it's the, that the, by kind of walling off the day-to-day, what the special counsel ends up presenting ultimately to the attorney general and that the attorney general is ultimately in charge of, it's it, it, maybe fait accompli is too strong of a term, but but that provides a lot more insulation than whether this than if it were to go through the day-to-day Justice Department process. Is, is that a fair way of unpacking yeah, your- the, the political costs of countermanding the special counsel are very high, as Bill Barr found out when he uh, misrepresented the contents of the Mueller report. Uh, it may have been worth it to him, but it was, you know, it was a costly thing to do. And the default setting, if you don't do something that you then have to notify Congress about and cause a scandal, is that you have a very high degree of functional independence. Was it as high as it was under the independent counsel law? No, but that had its own pathologies. And so it is a compromise that allows a high degree of independence that also allows a a certain degree of supervision if the attorney general is willing to take the political heat of exercising it. Now, I think in this case, unlike in the Mueller case, the likelihood of friction between the attorney general and the special counsel is pretty minimal since 
the Biden White House and therefore the Justice Department leadership, I don't think has a particular dog in the fight over whether Trump gets indicted or not. Unlike unlike some Democrats, this is not something that Joe Biden has opined upon, right? It's not like Elizabeth Warren, who's who basically promised to indict Donald Trump. And so, you know, I, I think Merrick Garland actually is in a position where he could say that, you know, legitimately, the decision is to be made on the merits. And so the question is, whose merits opinion matters? Is it his or is it Jack Smith's? And what this decision says is it's Jack Smith's, absent some egregious misconduct or or failure of judgment. And so I, I think that's a bit of a different situation than when the special counsel is, you know, contemplating filing a report that is arguably the basis for the impeachment of the incumbent president. Yeah, I think there is a bureaucratic benefit, certainly to the FBI and to some extent DOJ, having them removed from the what I anticipate constant sort of drumbeat from a now hostile Republican House to investigate and ask questions. And, you know, looking at sort of the congressional response in the aftermath of the Clinton investigation and the burden that Congress placed on the FBI with just request after request after request, putting the FBI in a position to be able to respond to any sort of congressional inquiry and say, you know what, that's special counsel. We're not involved with that. You need to go to DOJ. Every time a senior national security FBI official goes up to the Hill to testify, they can give that very short answer. It does insulate the investigative body of the FBI from a lot of the, you know, the, the hostile targeting that's going to be going on, certainly at the special counsel. Does that some of the DOJ? Maybe not quite as much because those requests are still going to come in because the buck does stop with the AG, but it, it provides some sort of political distance from a politically charged investigation with you know the 98% of the other work that continues at the FBI. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers 
that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So I want to turn to the kind of day-to-day of the special counsel's work. But before I do that, Ben, I have one last question for you, which is what the basis was for Garland appointing Smith as the special counsel. You know, In both his announcement, he seemed to make quite clear that the reason for the appointment was because it was in the public interest rather than because there was a conflict of interest in DOJ prosecuting Donald Trump. So a couple of questions for you are, you know, one, you know, what, what do you read uh, from that distinction? 
Are you convinced by that distinction that there really is no uh, conflict of interest? And do you think ultimately that Merrick Garland had much of a choice, practically speaking, in appointing a special counsel once Trump uh, announced his reelection uh, bid? Yeah, so it's a it's a complicated question, and I, I guess as a as a functional matter, he had a choice in the sense that you know there's no enforcement mechanism for this reg, and so if the attorney general wants to not trigger the reg, he can do it. He can just say, "I don't find that there's a conflict of interest or an extraordinary circumstance." Uh, that said, when you read the relevant reg, it is pretty hard to escape the idea that that would be a lawless thing to do. Um, so I think it's one thing to say that the former president, the Justice Department, has no conflict of interest and it's no extraordinary circumstance investigating a former president. That may or may not be right, but it's uh, certainly arguable. But to say that there is no extraordinary circumstances when you are contemplating the indictment in two separate investigations of a man who is actively running for president and would replace you on day one of his presidency strikes me as almost indefensible. I, I, I actually can't understand the logic of that. And so I think what probably happened was there was a, this is entirely my own speculation, but I, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But I think there was probably a decision when Trump became a subject of the investigation that they had no conflict of interest and there was no extraordinary circumstance as long as he was not a declared candidate for future office. You know, he's just a private citizen, albeit one who used to be president. But that ended on Tuesday. And on Tuesday, he became a declared candidate against the president who appointed Garland. He would unappoint Garland. And by the way, the president himself has said that he is running again, meaning that this is the active political opponent, or at least an active political opponent of the incumbent president who would request who would immediately fire the current attorney general. Now, I actually think that's a pretty clear case of a potential conflict of interest or a real, an apparent conflict of interest. But whether it is that or not, it is certainly an extraordinary circumstance. And so whether Garland's judgment is that there is no conflict of interest, but there's an extraordinary circumstance, or whether it's that he doesn't reach the question of whether there's a conflict of interest, because there's an extraordinary circumstance, it leads you to the same place anyway, which is that uh, the regs, at least if you're going to be honest about it, require uh, the appointment of a special counsel. So I think it's correct. I think it's the correct decision. And I'm not sure it wasn't required before, although I, I, think the line that they've drawn is probably a defensible one, but I just don't see the argument for not doing it after Tuesday. So is it fair just to sum up that you are not remotely surprised, at least since Donald Trump announced his reelection, which itself was not particularly surprising, that this is where we were heading and it was ultimately always going to end up being another, yet another special counsel? Well, so I didn't 
specifically predict that it would happen. So I can't say I was, you know, expecting it this afternoon. On the other hand, you know, there has been reporting that it's been under consideration. And when I read that reporting, that reporting made sense to me, given everything I just said and given a certain knowledge of what the regs say. And so, you know, it's, it's clear that it was going to require some serious thought after Trump declared his candidacy. And as I say, I suspect it is a very painful decision for Garland, who has, you know, really spent the last two years trying to reinvigorate confidence in the normal Justice Department hierarchy to have to yank something out of it. I think if he had wanted to do this, he could have done it ages ago. And the fact that he didn't do it ages ago is pretty clear evidence that he didn't want to do it. And so I suspect today is a pretty painful day for him. That said, I I don't see how you read that section of the Code of Federal Regulations without, like, I, I'm not sure what the circumstances that would require, uh, would count as an extraordinary circumstance under the regs, if not this one. So a couple of quick points. One is I do think it's important to emphasize that Garland, uh, during his announcement, as you said, Ben, noted not just that, you know, of course, Trump has announced that he's running for president, but that President Biden has indicated that he will likely be running against Trump. And so this is not just, uh, you know, investigating a former president who may be a future president. It's that there are two once and perhaps future presidents who are uh, sort of in the field here, and that that perhaps is what put Garland in a in a difficult position. I do note that because I think it it seemed from from the way Garland was framing it that that was important to his thinking, and it it is worth noting. I, I do worry that you end up in this situation where you know Trump says jump, and everyone has to say how high, as if he's kind of pressed a magic button by uh, declaring. Obviously. Both Garland and Smith are trying to indicate that the investigation is not going to slow down. They seemed really, really concerned about making sure that people understood that. Um, so, you know, query how successful that effort by Trump is going to be. One one thing I do want to note, I actually I don't have a particularly strong view about whether this was the correct interpretation of, of the regs or not, whether it was required. But this has been a topic of a pretty heated debate on whether or not a special counsel appointment was required over the last couple of weeks. And so it's worth noting that, uh, Ben, just because you, you said that in, in your view, you know, this is sort of the only way to to read the regs and the ethics requirements, that there, there are a number of people who have reached the opposite view. So Chuck Rosenberg, for example, who's a former DOJ official and sometimes lawfare writer, argued recently that there, there wasn't a need for a special counsel, in part because there aren't any of the circumstances that we saw under the Trump administration, where there was sort of overt efforts by the president and in some cases by the attorney general himself to interfere directly with the workings of justice. Um, so just putting that on the table uh, so that listeners have a sense of the uh, the disagreements here, even though it's, it's pretty clear that uh, Garland went with Ben's view. Let's talk for a second about the, the audience, uh, as it were, for for the appointment of the special counsel. Pete, you, you mentioned that in some way, with respect to Congress, the special counsel insulates at least the FBI 
from the shenanigans that a uh, the the soon to be uh, GOP controlled House will do in terms of investigations and general harassment, uh, but that it's not really going to help DOJ itself that much because ultimately the special counsel is within DOJ and ultimately is all answerable to Merrick Garland. And I wanted to expand on that observation because if ultimately the special counsel, especially because of the close coordination, is going to be within DOJ itself, you know, should we expect that, well, forget Trump, but maybe Trump supporters or the Republican base is going to feel that the special counsel is advancing the interests of uh, even-handed justice, or will they look at this and just not really care? And if so, is this really about convincing the rest of America, you know, independents, those types of folks, that that DOJ is is conducting this investigation in a, in an appropriate way? So let me, let me start with you, Pete, to get to get your thoughts, and then we can go around. Um, sure. I, so my sense is DOJ is not doing this with the purpose of convincing anybody whatsoever. I think that you know Garland in particular is going to take a look at what the regulation requires and what the circumstances and facts are right now and make a decision based on that. And whether, I don't think there's a reasonable expectation that anybody on the right, certainly anybody that's a Trump supporter is going to believe this is not a, a big effort on the part of the deep state, right? The special counsel in conjunction with the DOJ in conjunction with the FBI, that you're not going to change any minds. You're not going to cause anybody to not call for the dissolution and defunding of DOJ and the FBI. So I think the decision is not, is one just strictly based on the regulation and what the intent of that regulation is. And then, you know, beyond that, again, I do think it, the the reality is that it will free in the, in the very sort of narrow context of congressional oversight, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the Bureau, but also lower levels of the DOJ, right? So if Matt Olson, if the head of, you know, as in the head of the National Security Division or the head of the Crim Division or the head of Civil Division go up and they're testifying in front of Congress, you know, they can all point to say, you know, I have nothing to do with this investigation that's being handled by the special counsel. So again, that's a, that's a pretty narrow consideration. I don't think that was a motive force at all. in in driving this one way or the other. It may well have been considered. But again, I I think the the decision was was one of the what is required by the regulation and not much else. Okay. So I I now want to turn to the question of what this means for the investigation itself. And here, Pete, I mean, I think you obviously have the, the most interesting perspective, since you were part of the team that investigated foreign election interference in the 2016 election, both before and after the appointment of the special counsel. So if you could just give us a little bit of historical information and just a little bit of your experience in how that changed or how the investigation changed when Mueller came in and, and how you expect that the current investigation will change now that there's a special counsel. And in particular, do you think that there's a way for this this special counsel to not delay the ongoing investigation too much? You know, both Garland and Smith in their statements emphasize that this will all happen very quickly. This is not going to be a delay. But if it's not going to be a delay, then what's the special counsel going to be doing? Uh, sure. So just kind of looking back, back historically, we opened, you know, in the summer of 2016, a series of cases that were later picked up by the special counsel, initially the case on Mike Flynn, George Papadopoulos, Carter Page, Paul Manafort, later on Roger Stone and, and some others. But essentially those were up and running for at least 10 months before special counsel was named, Mueller was named on May 17th. And, you know, the day after that on May 18th, and I, I and other folks were talking to his deputy Aaron Zebley and May 19th, two days after his appointment, he and his leadership team were in FBI headquarters and were briefing him and getting him up to speed on the cases. So that initial engagement was immediate. 
the, the people, the agents, the analysts who were working on those cases largely stayed and continued. There were some people who changed. You know, the, the, the biggest thing was we had, you know, one, I believe Brandon Van Grack was an attorney who was working on the cases prior to the appointment of Mueller. No other, there, there was not a similar sort of companion prosecution, prosecutor team that was there. But again, identifying and getting those prosecutors on board probably took three, maybe four weeks at the, at the, at the far end to get the entire team, well, not the entire, but to get the core team of lead attorneys on board. Similarly, you know, within weeks, three weeks, I think we had all moved into temporary space and gotten the team sitting together. So the the immediate impact the the folks the agents the investigators the analysts working on the cases it, there there wasn't a change they had their marching orders they knew what they were doing that continued and if anything getting everybody under one special counsel adding a great deal of really aggressive prosecutors did nothing but accelerate the work of what we had been doing now pivoting to these cases you know i have some concern when you look at the scope of what this current special counsel is doing. I don't know what DOJ was doing in this arena from like January 6, 2021 until the beginning of this year, because it was clear they're doing a lot of work about the people who had intruded into the Capitol, the violent behavior, the attacking of law enforcement and those sorts of crimes. Those investigations were clearly ongoing, but there's an odd absence of a lot of sort of indicators of investigation around the fake elector plot about the higher levels of folks until my recollection is earlier this year. So bottom line, roughly about the same 10 month span of lead time. What is different in this case from what special counsel Mueller took over is you have a great deal of AUSAs and other prosecutors very well engaged, absolutely, you know, working with as part of an investigative team, gathering evidence you know, issuing subpoenas, search warrants, doing a great deal of very uh, aggressive investigation that this special counsel is walking into. They know what they're doing. They know what their path ahead is. I don't expect much, if any, of a real slowdown in that ongoing activity. You know, certainly leadership of those investigative teams are going to need to get together with Smith and whatever small group he chooses to help lead his team to sit down and brief where they're going. But I mean, this is very much something that I think you can walk and chew gum at the same time. So I don't expect much of a slowdown at all. I absolutely agree with the attorney general that this is something that I would not anticipate to cause much of a hiccup. And in the very near term, I think it will actually cause a focusing and an acceleration of efforts uh, more than anything else. I agree with all of that. I do think one of the interesting questions is what, if anything, this says about where the investigation is. So, you know, one possibility when the Mueller investigation got turned over to Mueller uh, from the FBI, it was quite early in the investigation, less than a year uh, this is a, at a much more advanced stage. We've already had a search warrant executed against the former president's house. We've had, uh, you know, numerous search warrants executed against, uh, the phones of, uh, staffers in their, uh, in their underwear. And, you know, th- there's a possibility that this is, uh, much closer to indictment than that was at the time of the Mueller appointment, which was, after all, only less than two months after Jim Comey had disclosed the existence of the investigation in the first place. And so one 
I think, really interesting question here is, is Mr. Uh, Smith really being brought on to make the prosecutorial decisions or is he being brought on to conduct some substantial portion of the investigation? And I really feel like we don't know the answer to that question. And those are seem to me to be very different jobs. And it's a, like in that sense, it may be very different from the Mueller situation where, you know, Bob Mueller was brought in to supervise an investigation that had been going on for a while, but was you know, only just overt recently, this may be a situation where the body of a lot of the investigation is done and we're relatively close to decision time, perhaps not with respect to Trump on the January 6th stuff, but with respect to people like, you know, John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark and Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows. And so, you know, I, I, I do think the, the actual posture of the investigation, which is very opaque, uh, matters a great deal. Yeah. And one thing, Ben, that I'd add to that is certainly on the Mar-a-Lago side, I mean, we're not, there's still, I think, pending argument at the 11th Circuit about the whole issue of whether or not the government's going to be able to access some of this material that the special, the special, right, the special counsel has been, or the special master has been appointed to go through. So that's the argument, right? That's not even the decision by the 11th Circuit. So there's no way on the Mar-a-Lago side, DOJ is going to make any decision until they can first get a hold of the evidence that they haven't been able to see yet and decide how that's relevant, if there's anything to follow up and how that plays into their charging idea. The second thing is, if either side, based on the ruling from the 11th Circuit, decides to appeal it to the Supreme Court, you've got potentially a great deal of further sort of appellate litigation that that is, in my opinion, almost certainly going to include OLC and the, the 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 Office of Solicitor General, that is the type of argument that is going to necessarily include DOJ entities outside of the new special counsel. So on the Mar-a-Lago side, uh, I, I think there's certainly you know many things still to come before we can get to a point of even making a, before DOJ or the special counsel decides whether or not to bring charges in that case. And just to clarify one kind of detail, but because this played such an important role in the Mueller investigation, I think it's worth bringing up, you know, by, by regulations, the special counsel has to provide a report to the attorney general um, explaining the kind of prosecution or declination decisions. Obviously, if there's a prosecution decision, the report is kind of the indictment itself. If there's a declination, then you're going to be sort of in the same situation. So, I mean, should we, you know, do, do, we, do we think there's going to be a repeat, especially if there's a decision not to prosecute of kind of not prosecution, but then this you know, yet another report that we all pour over to find out all the bad things that 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 Trump did. Well, you know, as they say, a time is a flat circle. So <laughs> I think we're just doomed to repeat the events of 2016 to 2019 over and over again until we all die. I will just say on the matter of the report, the reg is ambiguous as to whether the report becomes public. The if memory serves, the the report itself is confidential, but then the attorney general gets to decide whether to make it public. And so, you know, what role the report plays uh, is both a function of how many indictments get issued and also a function of uh, whether it 
you know, the more indictments there are, the less important the report is. And the report is only important externally to the department to the extent the attorney general decides to make it public. I think in this case, the, the report will have huge importance if Mr. Smith decides not to indict the former president, because then the report will contain the answer to why. If, on the other hand, the he goes ahead with a prosecution, nobody's going to care much about his marginal notes on the subject. Okay. So last question before we close out for all three of you. How big of a deal is the appointment of the special counsel? And in particular, I'm thinking about this on two dimensions, right? One is how much do we think that the appointment of the special counsel actually might change the prosecution decision that would happen absent the special counsel? And also, do we think that the appointment of the special counsel will, to the extent that it's trying to increase public confidence in DOJ, actually do that thing? Uh, Quinta, let me start with you. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I will say this was, there were a lot fewer fireworks here than I might have expected uh, from yet another special counsel announcement, um, in part because Garland seemed really set on emphasizing that, you know, the the department had been conducting investigations according to normal procedures, that he trusted everybody who was involved in the investigation, that this was, you know, not a situation where he was removing control because of anything that anyone had had done. And so in that respect, you know, they, they seem to be trying to say, you know, everything's just going to keep on trucking along in the same way that it was before. I suppose there is the question has been flagged of of whether this this means that we're farther or closer to a potential indictment. In terms of public trust, I mean, one of the ironies here, and this is what I was trying to get to uh, in my point before about the distinction between the special counsel circumstances now and where they were under the Trump administration, that, you know, Garland... I think it's fair to say was picked for this rule precisely because he is seen as, you know, above the fray, non-political, someone who cares deeply about the the norms and professional values of the department. Um, and so there, it's a little bit funny to kind of see Garland find someone who can like play that job for him because he feels that the regs require him to hand that off. You know, it's, it's Merrick Garland's all the way down, you might say. Um, And so, and I think Pete was getting to this earlier, you know, if people were not going to trust Garland's judgment here, I don't know if they're going to trust Smith's judgment because they both seem extremely professional and extremely well qualified to make these decisions carefully and neutrally. I think the decision is quite consequential, and I think it's frankly regrettable. When Merrick Garland was appointed uh, attorney general, one of the reasons I, A, advocated that, and B, was very, very glad when Biden did it, was because I think Merrick Garland is the ideal person to make this decision and to make it with uh, enormous credibility, which isn't to say that everybody will accept it because they won't, but to do it in a fashion that is on the merits and will be perceived as on the merits by reasonable people. And so I think the it's quite ironic that he is now in the position where he has to turn it over to somebody else. I think it's regrettable. I don't think the decision, the quality of decision making is likely to be aided by it. I do think it was probably required by the reg though. And so I I, I think 
exactly the same judgment that I trust Merrick Garland to make on the merits of the prosecution, I actually think he uh, showed today. So I, I, but I, but I think it is consequential and the consequences will be that the person making the decision is somebody uh, who, while a distinguished federal prosecutor and international prosecutor has less prestige, is not a former federal uh, appellate court judge, and is not somebody who was seen by reasonable lawyers as somewhat above politics. So I'm, I'm, I, I think it was probably the right decision, but I'm frustrated by it. Yeah, I think I agree with uh, with Ben and certainly is, is with with Quinta as well. I'm not sure this is not the kind of person when everybody heard Bob Mueller's name, everybody in the nation knew who he was, his background, his reputation, and what he brought to the table. And I think that served a a for a reasonable you know unbiased American. The image and reputation of Bob Mueller is exactly the kind of person you want in a role like this. And I agree with Ben that you know Attorney General Garland brought the same reputation into the job as the attorney general in part very much because of the prospect of what might happen vis-a-vis DOJ and former president Donald Trump. So again, this is absolutely no knock on John Smith. I don't know him at all. Part of the point is I don't know him at all. I, you know, not that that's a me, but I think a lot of people saying, well, who is this guy? I think when it comes to a decision about whether or not you're going to bring a criminal charge for the first time in our nation's history against a former president of the United States, is that the right person to have or not? I don't know. Is that going to impact the ultimate decision one way or the other or the credibility of that decision? I, I hope not. I think it's hard to tell. I think there's a, uh, a lot of kind of wait and see what comes out of uh, his work. And again, you know, it is what it is. And I, you know, completely agree with Ben. I don't think there's any other choice. I would be curious to see who else was on the consideration list. I don't know that we'll ever know, but, you know, did, did people turn down the attorney general? Was this, you know, the universal choice? You know, that's all, you know, sort of Washington DC parlor talk, I'm sure for the next year and a half. But uh, again, I'm, I, I kind of have a mixed opinion of it. And we'll, we'll, I think it's in my opinion, too early to tell whether or not it's consequential or not. I think we should leave it there. Quinta, Ben, Pete, thanks so much. And this will obviously not be the last time we talk about the special counsel. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents series on the government's response to January 6th. And check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.